0: Hello and welcome to episode 79 of Sensational She-Geek, live from Yancey Street. This episode is just one of our regular weekly episodes, so we're going to be starting off with the news, which does cover the Last of Us trailer, Doom Patrol season 4, Constantine 2, some general Namor MCU news, and a Daredevil casting speculation. We also have comic book picks from the week of the 21st. Um, I think my pick of the week is definitely going to have to be Exterminators, number one, uh, but there was some really, really fun stuff here as well, like Public Domain by Chip Sartsky. and then we have the comic book polls for this week, which I have split up entirely by publisher this time, just trying some new things, uh, so we'll go over those in a little bit. She-Hulk episode six is probably not going to be the discussion that you uh, kind of expect it to be, because... I think the sixth episode was a big turning point for me as a fan of She-Hulk and viewer of the show, Um, and it wasn't quite hitting the mark. Uh, We'll talk about more of that when we get to that portion of the episode. And then we have a little bit of discussion about this first half of the season of, well, a little over that now, of Rings of Power. This is episodes one through five, and it's going to be out of eight episodes total. And again, this is only the first season of what is planned to be five seasons of this show. Um, So we'll go over the first five episodes of Rings of Power and some of the fun, um, the more you know facts sort of things and Easter eggs and whatnot, Um, some fun stuff that I noticed in the show. And we'll wrap up today's episode with Harley Quinn. Uh, The latest season, I believe, was season uh, three, and we're going to be talking episodes eight through ten very briefly focusing more on how we leave things off in the finale because we do already know that this is going to have a fourth season coming probably in the next year and a half or so. Uh, So we will be getting more of the animated Harley Quinn show um, at some point in the future so we can talk about how the ending of this season might affect what happens next. So all of that and more coming on this episode. Make sure you stick around for all that good stuff. Real quick here before we get started, please feel free to join the Yancey Street Discord. There is a fresh invite link at the bottom of each episode's description. The Discord is a safe, friendly place for socialization and discussion of whatever you want really, comics, pop culture, or otherwise. And it's also where you can go to find links or images mentioned during the podcast all in one place. You can find me most easily on social media via Instagram. My username is at Anna with the Comics because my name is Anna, and hey, I've got a a lot of comics. Uh, my podcast updates, if you want to find those, they'll be mostly on Twitter, where my username is at Savage she Geek because Sensational was too many letters. My website is sensationalshegeek.weebly.com, where I have been working on fixing up the site quite a bit so that it is still relevant in addition to the podcast, so make sure you go and check that out, including my beginner's guide to both comics and manga, covering hopefully any information that you might need to take your first steps into the world of comics or manga, including recommendations on comics, graphic novels, manga, series, etc. Uh, I also have my reading orders with commentary on appearances of various leading ladies, many of which I use to turn into the monthly Yancey Street specials also linked all over my site, Uh, and they focus on a so far female character from the comics to study thoroughly and then expand upon in a podcast episode of their own. I try to make them pretty relevant. For example, I'm about 95% done with a Jennifer Walters She-Hulk episode which is going to be coming out uh for her show this August. Additionally, anything pre-2021 content-wise can be found written in the website blog for your reference, which was all before I started the podcast. Plus my podcast notes, which are basically all the content of each episode in written format, are made available on my blog as well for reading the podcast instead of listening and for those who are hearing impaired if they'd like to keep up with the podcast events as well. And you can finally find links to anywhere that you can listen to the podcast, which is most if not all podcast hosting apps and also includes YouTube. On YouTube, I also post the podcast episodes in a single playlist format, if that is an easier way for you to listen. And I also occasionally post action figure review videos. It has been a lot more imports in the latest videos, as I have pretty much given up on Hasbro's Marvel Legends line, Uh, but I do have a big backlog of Legends videos, including a tour of our entire collection. It's a very long video tour. And soon the HasLab Galactus, assuming that he is on his way, to go alongside last year's HasLab Sentinel video. I do have a podcast Patreon. You can find it under Sensational SheGeek. It's set up for donations to support the podcast, as well as a Ko-fi, which is like a buy a creator a coffee situation, and Cash App, Venmo, PayPal are all linked on my link tree for donation towards the podcast, which should appear linked, among various other fun things, at the bottom of each episode's description. Uh, I do also have a Redbubble shop called Geek Shop, but I have been having some issues with their site and whatnot. Um, So I'm working on setting up my own storefront on my site, which hopefully will be coming by the new year and will be faster with more support from listeners. First off, in the news, I'd like to go over just a couple of things that are back in terms of television for the most part. Uh, First off, The Neighborhood is back, which I know is a super silly sitcom, but as far as sitcoms go, actually has some pretty decent you know, has some pretty good stuff to it. The first episode back had the whole power went out in the neighborhood, and so they all got together and uh, did um, with the one house that had electricity doing the kind of like front yard potluck situation, so nobody's food goes bad and they're all kind of sharing. It was a very nice multicultural moment. Um, I I, I enjoyed the show for those kinds of reasons. Also back is Bob's Burgers, which premieres on Sundays. Um, I am, I have to admit, though, getting a little bit annoyed that the children have not aged um, in 13 seasons. I I, I get a little peeved about that. But whatever, it doesn't really matter. Ghosts, the UK version, is also back. I haven't watched the first episode yet. I think it just premiered this past week. I'll have to check that. Uh, Really, really enjoyed this show. Uh, Of course, it is the original version of what we also have as a U.S. Ghosts show, um, who actually, I believe, stars a... British actress? or oh, maybe she's Canadian. I'm not sure. Um, but uh, she was the iZombie actress. But anyway, uh, both versions of the show are really fun, although the American version does pull really... Um strongly from the UK version. So if you watch both, there is a fair amount of, of kind of repeat (laughs) repetition, I guess. Um, but it is a really really fun show. I haven't watched this first episode yet, but I'm going to when I am done with this. Um, so there's that to look forward to in my life, at least. (laughs) Um, also a new show that premiered last week or something was the vamp or just vampire Academy, which I'm sure you just, scoffed at me a little bit. But um, it came out with this movie in 2014 that was total garbage. I remember I read the book in high school. It may have been a series of books. I genuinely don't remember. Um, but the movie that came out in 2014 was awful. I don't think anybody has any kind of argument against that. Um, but this is actually pretty fun. Obviously, it being turned into a show, there seemed to be expanding a lot more. I really don't remember much from the book, period. Um, But this seems to be a really fun show, so you can check that out as well. I believe that one comes out on Thursdays. And finally, uh, if you're looking for a good movie to watch, this weekend we watched Bodies, 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 and oh my goodness, I loved it. Uh, Really fantastic kind of whodunit thriller. Um, (laughs) I don't want to give too much away, but the ending, uh, it is not, this is not the movie for people who are not satisfied without the entirety of events of the movie being explained. Um, because the ending, you get the solution and then you just get more questions and those don't get answered. (laughs) Um, but the way everything kind of plays out is fantastic. And I really, really enjoyed that. Um, it's out on HD somewhere out there on the internet, so you can check that out for yourself as well. Now, to preface my discussion of the Last of Us trailer, or is it the The Last of Us trailer? Whatever. Um, I have never played this game. I have watched my husband play it for a long time, Um, but I've never played it myself if I'm aware of like the general events of things, but not the details. So I did some research, so you can skip this if you are super knowledgeable about the game because there's nothing here that I can tell you probably don't already know. Um, but I will say that the trailer gave me chills. So I think it's saying a lot for somebody who did not does not even have a real any kind of emotional connection to the subject matter aside from, I hope this is going to be good. <laughs> uh, we have that it is starring Pedro Pascal, of course, Bella Ramsey. When it's really funny is when they list these names, because I always say, what projects were these actors from before? Um, it's, you know, Pedro Pascal these days, they put the Mandalorian and Bella Ramsey. They're putting Game of Thrones because that was, she was the young, um, was she the young wolf, whatever they called her there. I don't remember. She was that badass little girl. Um but she uh she ended up well, sorry, I'm going on the wrong train here. Um they really are both in Game of Thrones is my point here. Pedro Pascal was in Game of Thrones too, but they don't make that connection in any of these articles. They just say Mandalorian. Anyway, I'm super off track. But anyway, it's the, the official description of the show is starring Pedro Pascal of the Mandalorian and Bella Ramsey of Game of Thrones. The Last of Us follows Joel Pascal, a smuggler tasked with escorting the teenage girl Ellie Ramsey across a post-apocalyptic United States. So that is your general breakdown, not general breakdown, just your general synopsis, super basic. Uh, this trailer was set to really appropriate music. This was Hank Williams's Alone and Forsaken. Appropriate for quite a few reasons. You get the Old West vibes. You get the topically, you know, Alone and Forsaken is very much what The Last of Us world kind of sits in. Um, and things from the trailer that are relevant to the world of the game, little Easter eggs. So you see at one point a broken watch on Pedro Pascal's character, or you see it at some point in the trailer. Uh, that was a watch given to him by his daughter, Sarah, who is going to be played in this show by Nico Parker. We also see his character, Tess, who is going to be played by Fringe's Anna Torv and Bill played by Nick Offerman, who is gonna be a recluse who also happens to be friends with Joel. I keep saying it's going to be, these are all characters from the game, so <laughs> they, they, they exist already. Uh, and then Clickers are the Last of Us versions of zombies, basically. They use sound to find their prey. Um, and then we also got our first look at Marlene, who is Merle Dandridge, reprising her role from voicing this character in the game as well, apparently. People are also saying that we saw our, let's see, the show is actually going to go beyond the first uh, The Last of Us game because we briefly see Riley, who's played by Euphoria's Storm Reid, um, or Ride, I'm not sure how to say that, um, who sits on a carousel in the trailer with Ellie, which is a scene that is apparently taken from The Last of Us Left Behind DLC. We see Gabriel Luna as Tommy Miller, Gabriel Luna, and we see Melanie Linsky as Kathleen, who is a ruthless leader of a revolutionary movement in Kansas City. So if you were unfamiliar, familiar with anything about the game specifically, hopefully that will give you a good kind of image of what to expect from the show. Um, I think it sounds really fun. I've always liked the premise of the game. It's obviously made it big for a reason. They did a good job with it. Um, I know certain parts down the line get extremely emotional, tugging at the heartstrings, so I'm super curious how far they're going to go with the the show, Um, and if they're going to stick to the game exactly how the game kind of goes with things. So this is going to be on HBO Max in 2023. We don't really have a specific date yet or any kind of knowledge of when it'll be premiering, but that will be sometime on HBO Max in 2023. More good news. Doom Patrol has been confirmed to have season four. Uh, this is the first confirmation officially of the show's return, featuring Robot Man by Brendan Fraser, Negative Man by Matt Bomber, Rita, Fa- uh, Rita Farr by April Balby, Crazy Jane by Diane Guerrero, who's had a great career recently, Cyborg by Jovian Wade, and the recently recruited Madame Rouge Michelle Gomez. Again, fantastic career of late. Uh, We also know that uh, due to the images and whatnot they put out for season four promos, we know we're going to have a new character, a potential member of the Doom Patrol team, and that is Casey Brink, aka Space Case, as she will be played by Madeline Zima. Space Case was created by Gerard Way during his young animal imprint on Doom Patrol in, I believe, 2015. She first appeared in the first issue which I did pick up when it first came out actually I think I picked up the director's cut, which came out a little bit later and has some extra material in there. But it is a really cool uh, first issue. I had absolutely zero clue what was happening when I picked it up, so I did not continue reading it. Um, I don't think I had even heard of the Doom Patrol in 2015 prior to picking up that comic. But um, in the comic, uh, Space Case, Casey Brink, she was created by Danny the Street, which if you watched the show or are familiar with the comics, you'll under- know who Danny the Street is. He is a street named Danny. Um and he and she has the ability to break the fourth wall and communicate with the comic reader, kind of like how a lot of Marvel characters do, She-Hulk, Deadpool, etc. As pointed out by one screen writer, they say Doom Patrol and Umbrella Academy, Doom Patrol, um well, D- Umbrella Academy, having been created and written by Gerard Way, they form a symbiotic circle. I don't know why they say Wade, but it's Way. Way's Umbrella Academy was heavily inspired by Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol comics, and it was the success of that comic that inspired DC to bring the legendary musician to relaunch the team in 2016, because he's the front man of My Chemical Romance. Both Umbrella Academy Season 1 and the first episode of Doom Patrol both premiered on February 15th, 2019, so this particular writer thinks that it would be appropriate for them both to conclude with Season 4. I agree that I think this is going to be the last season of doom patrol, not because of that, really. Um, although that's a, just a fun, like the more, you know, point good for it. Um, uh, I think it's because, I mean, this is going to be premiering in December. I hadn't gotten to that point, but this is premiering in HBO max in December. Um, we have seen almost no marketing for the show and it's already this far along. They, they, if, if they wanted to have this being something that's still continued years into the future, they would be heavily marketing it. But knowing that, you know, supposedly knowing that they aren't going to be going beyond the season that they've already, you know, supposedly wrapped up and finished with a bow on it and it's ready to go in the studio, um, they don't need to To do anything extra with it because they don't need people to come back after this season. Um, so that's kind of why, uh, to me, this feels like the last season because they kind of are just letting it die off a little bit, even though they are bringing in a new character. But um, she's a modern character. You know, they're digging from a lot of older Morse and stuff. And I also feel like taking from modern comics is sort of signifying, all right, I think that's the best we can do. We're done, which may or may not be true. But uh, as long as this fourth and last season supposedly last season, will be really good, I'm fine. And again, with Brendan Fraser having gotten such excellent reviews um, from his performance in The Whale at Toronto International Film Festival, I, I'm not sure if that's really a smart choice to, to be cutting this show, both of their projects, right, that contain Brendan Fraser. Although I th- I think he's popping up in some CW show recently. Let's see. I'm going to... Brendan. Frasier. Yes, it is Brennan Frasier and Tom Welling's The Professionals. Um, Apparently that's a thing that is happening. It was first revealed in 2019. I'm not sure what this article is saying, but... Oh, it's a year-old article. 2022. Here we go. Uh, professionals, E.P.S.T.S. Brendan Fraser and Tom Welling high octane action series. Okay, I'm not gonna lie, that sounds fun. Tom Welling is actually from Smallville. He was Clark in Smallville, um, and he's he's grown up a lot. He and Brendan Fraser at one point in time were both being made fun of for having grown up and grown out of shape a little bit. Um, and both of them have kind of reversed that a little bit as well. But I, uh, it's kind of goes in line with people saying that to women in Hollywood, it's it's extremely messed up. Um. <laughs> But yeah, this this seems apparently uh this is going to be some kind of crime show where everybody's a suspect, uh, and there's going to be romance, so, you know, whatever. Um, but yeah, Brendan Fraser, I, I don't know why they took away both Batgirl and potentially a fifth season of Doom Patrol, um, but at least we're going to have him somewhere. Warner can't seem to get rid of him or can't seem to let him go. I'm not sure how that would go, but anyway, moving on. Recently announced, I believe, from... Yes, the source for this news is exclusively from Deadline that Keanu Reeves is going to be starring in a Constantine sequel. For those of us who are new here or are not sure what I'm talking about, uh, they made a Constantine movie in 2005 um, where I believe he still had his brown hair and that was, like, people's main critique of it is because Constantine's, like, notoriously blonde. I don't really know if that's really a critique. Um, But it was like super intense. I remember uh, in the original, he's like, he's dying, but to save his soul, he keeps demons from breaching earth from hell, something like that. I had to do a quick wiki uh, review because I genuinely don't remember much of this movie. I do remember the big fight with Lucifer, uh, which is something that happened. Um, But as far as continuing the movie, Good for them. Not a clue what could be coming from it, <laughs> to be frank. But I think it's I think it's really funny. I also expectations wise feel like this might land somewhere around the latest Matrix movie, um, remastered or reimagined, whatever they called it. Uh, kind of it might. It's been you know it's been so long since the original that in making a late sequel this far down the line, they may have to lean really hard into the like cheesiness of making a (laughs) decade plus down the line later, uh, you know, 15 years plus 17 years is what it is down the line later sequel. They may have to lean into that a little bit to make it work. Um, I don't know. I think it all depends on what the writers and directors can kind of figure out and put out there. And in that case, the writer is Akiva Goldsman. Uh, they are writing and producing the project through, oh, it's um, it's male, okay, through his uh, Weed Road pictures. Weed Road Pictures, it's apparently his production company Also, uh, J.J. Abrams And Hannah Mingella Will be producing this um, as well I don't think they're involved in the screenplay But they are involved in producing it Um, As for Executive producer, we have Lorenzo Di Bonaventura Di Bonaventura um, and then the director is, once again, as it was in the original, Francis Lawrence. I'm not sure about those other, about uh, Akiva Goldsman or Lorenzo Bonavent- de Bonaventura. I'm not sure if they were on the original project, but that is who we have now. I highly doubt J.J. Abrams was on the original project in 2005. Um, I'm not sure about Abrams, but it does look like Akiva Goldsman was involved in the original 2005 movie, so that could be very fun. Other people, um, well, obviously he has insight to that, is what I meant. Other people involved in the original movie, aside from Keanu Reeves, it's actually, looking at it now, this is a pretty bonkers cast. You have Keanu Reeves, obviously playing John Constantine, and then you have, uh, Rachel Weiss, Weiss, Weiss who is fantastic in every way possible. You have Tilda Swinton playing the Abr- the Gabriel, the Angel Gabriel, um, which obviously- right up their alley. Peter Stormare, um, if I said that right, I don't know how to describe who he is, but you've definitely seen him in something. He was Lucifer. Shia LaBeouf, I don't think I need to expand on. Uh, Jimon Hunsu, which I probably said wrong, he played a character Midnight. Even Gavin Rossdale was in this, playing Balthazar. What a nuts group of actors. Um, to happen this, I don't know, I just think it's so funny. But uh, my assumption is that any one of those actors could come back into the sequel. Um, granted that they may have survived the original. I genuinely don't remember who that may include, though. So I think it, the original kind of ended with him sort of dying, I thought. Or did he save—I don't remember. I need to rewatch it, clearly. Um, But in case you are wondering the official description of who Constantine is, John Constantine is his name— supernatural exorcist and demonologist John Constantine. This is his official description. Apparently, yes, this is the same Constantine that they had in the two... uh No, sorry. The CW show, CW Constantine. Let me see who he was portrayed by because I can't remember. That was also the Constantine who shows up in, I believe, Legends of Tomorrow. Matt Ryan is his name. There was only this one season of the 2014 show, Constantine. It was pretty good. I actually don't think I... Finished it ever. Um, but we all, ooh, Harold Perrineau was in that. He was in, uh, like Lost and some other stuff. Um, whatever that show was, like Alone or something. Um, Yeah. Great, great, great actor. But Matt Ryan was John Constantine in that one. He was blonde. People loved it. Um, And then they had him go into like Legends of Tomorrow and Arrow, all kinds of Arrowverse stuff they had to do with him. But this is unrelated to that. Two separate projects. Um, I know people are always asking for that particular Constantine CW show with Matt Ryan to come back because people really liked that. Now we're getting this Constantine movie sequel. Who knows? Maybe we're going to have one of those weird Hollywood moments where two projects of exactly the same subject matter come out at the same time. That happens every few years or like once a year. I don't know why, (laughs) but it's always entertaining when it does. Over in the Marvel Cinematic Universe realm of things, we had a little bit of insight into the character of MCU Namor this week, played by, of course, Teno Cuerta, um, who i am been just loving more and more, each time he does an interview. So this most recently, in an interview with Empire, Tenoquerta, who is of course going to be portraying Namor in Wakanda Forever, he confirmed that his character is going to be a mutant when we see him in Wakanda Forever this November. Um, In the comics, because his father is human and his mother is Atlantean, he carries the mutant gene and possesses powers or certain powers that set him apart from the fellow Atlanteans. I have not been able to actually find the full interview itself from Empire, just the basically description of it and the rest kind of behind a paywall. So I'm going to assume that all of these news outlets aren't just making this up. And then what does this mean then? Um, I guess it means that they will be mentioning it in the movie likely in the in how he is different from the rest of the Atlanteans, and his birth was perhaps a sign of prosperity or something because of his mutation that gives him some kind of an advantage. I don't think it'll be much more than that, especially at this point. We've got quite a few years to go before we see a mutant superhero team of any kind. I really doubt that there will be any teases aside from Namor having a mutation in his genes, just like they said with Kamala. Uh, also, director Ryan Coogler in this same interview called Namor the antagonist of the movie for the proving that there is no reason for people to be calling Namor a villain of this movie or even the greater MCU. I'm not really sure why people latched onto that, but I'm seeing a lot of people still on Twitter uh, saying that he's going to be the great villain and blah, blah, blah. That is not really what's happening. He's not a villain. <clears throat> excuse me, Kugler also added, quote, the contrast between T'Challa and Namor, their characters and their nations, just leaps off the page. And so I guess that's something that he's really going to uh, go hard in the paint on, which is cool to me. Um, and he also said that there were initial plans for Namor to be actually teased when the first Black Panther movie came out. Uh, Kevin Feige revealed that Ryan had Ryan Coogler, he had to pitch for a tag at the end of Black Panther. He said the camera would push through the palace in Wakanda, and then we'd see wet footprints leading up to the throne. It's a little bit of a tease. I feel like the tease that they had in Endgame was kind of equally... Uh, That level, maybe. Um, But we're getting it now, and that's what matters. The interview uh, from Empire also came with some new pictures of Namor, which uh, were more like stills from the movie, it looks like. And those immediately did become memes about how Sue Storm is going to leave Reed Richards for this MCU Namor. Personally, I have always been 100% for Sue and Reed divorcing. We have a theory in our house that while still legally married and publicly married. Sue and Reed haven't truly been a married couple since Sue left him in Civil War. Uh, She did that whole thing where she gave him, like, the best night of his life, and then when he's asleep, writes him a letter and goes. (laughs) Uh, For a lot of reasons. I I don't think, uh, it's partially how, I, I don't think you can come back from that in your marriage. Um, and also the fact that she is so much younger than him, and in my opinion, can do so much better, etc., etc. Um, because in the comics, Namor notoriously has a crush on Sue Storm, going as far as to be tricked at one point into thinking that she'd actually left Reed for him in the 90s Namor the Submariner series, which made it super awkward when he confronts her at her home later in front of her family. Uh, but still, I would much rather have her have a fling with him than stay properly married to read. Also, this is totally a Namor that I can see a future potential Emma Frost absolutely losing her mind over. Uh, They have a fling in the comics as well, which is very divided in fan opinion. Um, But with this Namor, um, I can see Emma not being used to have to chase a man, um, but she really can't help herself with him. I think think I'd be super into that. So there's a lot of... A lot of really cool stuff coming, specifically from Namor. Um, I am super excited to see him not only in Wakanda Forever, but whatever they have for him planned after that movie. Finally, we have a bit of speculation revolving around the Daredevil Born Again show, which, remember, has not even started filming yet and is probably not going to be out until 2024. But, uh, based on various sources, it looks like Marvel is looking to cast a Chinese-American actor for a character they're calling Theo Chow. Um, The speculation is obviously not a character who people are very familiar with. In the comics, there is no Theo Chow, but people are guessing that that's going to be somebody else, or possibly just changing the name of um, a character who's already exists. And the speculation is, uh, that he could be blind spot. There is a blind spot called Sam Chung. Apparently that character though already appeared in the Netflix Iron Fish show. So it's kind of uncertain how much that might be available to them to use. Um, a better guess would be um, a new Iron Fist, not replacing Finn Jones, who was the previous Iron Fist from the Netflix show, but um, just adding a new just a new person picks up the mantle, I guess. Um, and that would be, uh, in this context, that would be Lin Lai, who is the former swordmaster-turned-Iron uh, Fist. After the events of King and Black, Lin washed up on the beaches outside of Kunlun, which, of course, is the whole Iron Fist... Shebang, right? Uh, just as Shao uh, Lao, the dragon that gives the Iron Fist the power, hatches from his egg, he bestows his chi onto Lin Lai and uh, therefore saves his life and grants him the power of the Iron Fist and title of the Iron Fist. So that's the situation as it is in the comics right now. Um, I definitely think that is a far better assumption for who this might be that they're looking for than Sam Chung Blindspot. Um, The third thing, though, that I haven't actually seen people talking about very much, and that's probably because the character isn't super related to Daredevil specifically, or really at all, really, um, and that would be Amadeus Cho, a.k.a. Totally Awesome Hulk, a.k.a. He Now Goes by Braun. Um, Amadeus Cho, at one point, basically took the hulk persona from um <laughs> from bruce banner um it's kind of complicated but he was hulk he was the only hulk for a while um and he had a pretty fun series it was actually i think drawn primarily by frank cho who does some fam- some fantastic art especially when it comes to hulks I, it's a whole thing um but then uh, we've 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 more recently seen Amadeus Cho as Braun in the Agents of Atlas series that have happened the past few years. Um so also on that note, we've also met Amadeus Cho's mother in the MCU already. I think she may have gotten killed. I honestly don't remember how that played out. Um but we met her for the first time in Age of Ultron. She was the um Asian American scientist who was working to help, like, the Vision project come to fruition, and then it became Ultron, and the whole thing happened. But we got Theo Chow, Amadeus Cho, uh, I feel like it could be a thing, or for all we know, this could be a completely new character. And why why would they put Amadeus Cho in a Daredevil show? Well, I have, uh, there is reason to believe that She-Hulk could be in that show as well, fellow lawyer, if not just Jen Walters. Um, and obviously she and Braun are both in the Hulk family, so, although they themselves are not family, it's kind of funny how that works out. But anyway, um, so that I don't know, I feel like it could work you know, superheroes need lawyers, right? Even kid superheroes. Although I think he's, he's grown now, but when he showed up, he was a teenager for sure. But anyway, um, the character of Theo Chow, we'll have to wait and see who he ends up being. In the comic book picks this week, here is what we're going to go over. We're going to go over Strange number 6, Exterminators number 1, Public Domain number... God, I think it was 4 or 5. Acts number 5, the Harley Quinn 30th Anniversary Special, the new Fantastic Four... Uh, creative Team, and then Deceased, War of the Undead Gods, number two, and New Mutants, number 30. Um, of course, with Strange starting off at the top of that list, this is supposed to be Clea's first solo series, and she wasn't even in this issue whatsoever, so... That sucks. In this issue, Wong, uh, he gets his memories back and it is revealed that the blasphemy cartel is WAND, W-A-N-D, which I guess are like the magical shield or something. I don't really know. Um, And we learn that through a character called Flickering Jenny, who is kind of cool, but then it turns out evil. And there is a really good Black Widow cameo. But other than that, I was frankly quite disappointed with this issue, as I have been with most of the series. Exterminators number 1 by Leia Williams was immediately good. It is X-rated appropriately and done very well. Uh, My only critique is why are they calling it X-rated? and still blurring out the cuss words. I don't really get that. That's just my own thing, I guess. Um, In this issue, Dazzler breaks up with her boyfriend of two months, known by Alex, uh, and she gets her girls together for getting drunk at a dive bar. Alex shows up and reveals that he is a vampire, and they can't take him out because of the amulet he wears. Um... So, fun stuff. And Carlos Gomez is the artist on this, and he does a really, really good job. Um, and the current New Mutants run had a particular story arc in it that made me absolutely hate the character of Boom Boom. She was written to be completely despicable. Um, so having Leia Williams in this issue make me like Boom Boom, I feel like that's pretty impressive. <laughs> um but the issue ends with basically the girls are kidnapped and taken to some kind of game world where they run into Wolverine, and by that I mean Laura Kinney, formerly X23. Public domain by Chipsarsky and Chip Sartsky, Um, continues to be absolutely brilliant in a way that doesn't really lend itself to being described super well, because it is a bit of a slice-of-life type story. Um the author of this comic in the story, he's been trying to get the rights to the comic back or get get paid for the amazing stuff that has come from the production company etc. cetera. It's all a big play on like the Marvel and DC stuff and creators rights and whatnot. Um, he ends up not really getting anything. All he really gets is that he can still write stories about the characters, but so can the publisher of the movies as well. So <laughs> he's, he's really not getting much, um, but it still causes a lot of stress within the publisher because I think that he might have a little bit of power over the fans and that's pretty much where we're at with this one. But um, I really I can't recommend Public Domain enough. It is very witty. It has a really nice story. Um, and its purpose is extremely clear when you're reading it. In Judgment Day number five, um, the big the big spoiler here is, I'll just jump to that and give you that as the rundown for the whole issue, Captain America is killed at one point in the issue, uh, and then he is resurrected in the end through the resurrection protocols by the X-Men, which leads me to believe they must have been able to do humans this whole time, and I've just been lying to everybody, um, which... I'm not sure if people would have a worse reaction to that. No, I do know. It's still worse that the eternals uh kill a human every time they get resurrected. That's still the worst reveal that I'm waiting for to have happen. uh the thing about this though um he was resurrected with his shield in hand i i i don't i I don't think that's how that works. But I'm, I'm curious to see what happens after all this big stuff is revealed. And eventually the Eternals tell everybody that they kill people by coming back to life. <laughs> uh, the Harley Quinn 30th anniversary had three stories in it that were to die for. Uh, one of them was about Harley Quinzel, the GCPD, of the GCPD, uh, in a story by Cami Garcia. She did a series... Um, called Joker and Harley or something like that. Really, really good series. Um, taking a look at like the actual criminal investigation side of things of Harley, uh, searching for the Joker and whatnot. Um, this story though, is her looking for the Joker, but actually finding Pamela Isley. I really enjoy getting a look at Ivy in that Kami Garcia universe is really cool. Um, Seven Sejic, I don't know how to say his name, (laughs) Uh, but he does, you know, Sunstone and all of that. Um, His story was fantastic. Obviously, he wrote the three-issue series Harleen a number of years ago, uh, which was a non-canon story about um, basically showing how it is that Harley Quinn, or Harleen Quinzel, rather, falls for the Joker when she was really such a smart and... Um, you know, beautiful and genu- genu- genuinely educated woman uh, and how she ends up kind of losing it, falling for him and then running off with him in the end, how all that kind of happens. So um, they've, they've let him put out a number of these little stories to fill in his Harleen universe a little bit, and I, I this is another one I, just, I very much enjoy it whenever he gets to put another one of those stories out. The third one was uh, actually by Paul Dini, which I was pretty surprised to see, because he has apparently learned to write Harley a lot better than the last time I read him write her. And the art was by Guillaume March, who I absolutely adore. Um, in the story, Ivy creates, it's a, it's a number of things that happens, but um, Harley basically has a housewarming party for her and Ivy moving in together. Um, Ivy creates Moldina from from a moldy egg sandwich. Um, Orca goes swimming in their pool, and then Wonder Woman shows up because Harley thought that she'd have to give the party some extra celebrity oomph. It's just a very cute story. Of course, they all end up fighting in the end. Um, But I very much enjoyed it. It was definitely top three in that 30th anniversary special for me personally. The Fantastic Four issue that came out last week is the start of a new creative team, and I like it so much more than what Dan Slott was giving us, and apparently the entire Fantastic Four fandom does as well, so that's good. Um, One line that I really enjoyed from this was, The Invisible Woman's greatest superpower is the power to make you feel seen. This whole issue is really a love letter to Sue Storm, and I very much appreciate that, regardless of the fact that it is Reed who is narrating the entire issue. we see Oubliette is the villain here who, for some reason, they have dressed like Madeline Pryor in that god-awful, um, <clears throat> ooh, what's his name? Kelly Sue husband. His story. He did a story for some expensive for a while, and he put Madeline Pryor in this god-awful S&M suit. That's what it looked like Oubliette was wearing. I have no idea why these choices are being made, but okay. Um... Yeah. <laughs> but ish, but but if you like this Fantastic Four issue, which again, I loved it because of its feeling of being a love letter to Sue Storm. Um, if you like this issue because of that as well, I highly, highly recommend that you check out the Mark Wade Invisible Woman miniseries, which has art done by the fantastic Matteo Loli. Uh, no pun intended, the whole series is just stupendous. Um, I think it's five issues and has some really fun covers as well. I believe it is Adam Hughes who does the regular covers. And then there's some fun variants, uh, throughout there as well, but it's a really, really good series. Um, and it's exactly the kind of vibe that you get from, from this issue of Fantastic Four with Sue Storm, really just showing what an actual true to God badass she is the second issue of tom taylor's dc sword the undead gods had a lot of a lot of bad stuff being revealed to everybody cuz they thought things were getting better and it's not jk things are still bad um but for whatever reason, the Black Racer manages to save Barda when she was about to uh accidentally get killed, so that's good. I love Barda. Uh, and then Undead Supergirl helps take out the planet of Korugar as a whole, <laughs> uh, because, you know, why would you want to keep the death toll anywhere below a few billion? Classic DC. So I love it. Uh, and then Darkseid shows up and kills Sinestro. Not only does he kill Sinestro, he takes his... He takes his ring from him. Uh so now you not only have anti-life dark side, you have anti-life yellow lantern dark side. Okay. Yellow lanterns are powered by their ability to, to cause fear. Did I not say anti-life dark side? <laughs> I don't think you can stop anti-life yellow lantern dark side. I don't think you can make people stop fearing that just saying. Uh, Finally, we are going to talk New Mutants number 30. Uh, The main story of this issue was 100% written for the hardcore OG New Mutants team fans. I can't say I fit in that category. Um, I know a lot about the New Mutants, the original New Mutants team. I've read a good bit of all that. Um, Not my favorite it is some people's favorite, good for them. I very much preferred the second story in the issue, which was actually Deadpool kid-sitting the latest generation of New Mutants, and then, of course, the older New Mutants show up and are like, oh my god, what is Deadpool doing here? Please leave! (laughs) Um... And it's a little bit, I think, of a preview of his series. I think it's coming in December, I want to say. And it definitely seems that they're previewing that to be very much a Deadpool returning to be a merc for money again. uh, With a company called Atelier. Atelier? I don't know how to say it, but it's A-T-E-L-I-E-R. So that will be what to expect in Deadpool whenever that gets started again. For the comic book polls this week, these are polled for the twenty eighth of December. We're going to go through uh the list by publisher, which is going to be Boom Studios, Image Comics, Abstract Studio, Oni Press, Dark Horse Comics, Dynamite Comics, DC Comics, and of course Marvel Comics. So starting with Briar, or sorry, starting with Boom Studios, we have Briar Number no. One by Christopher Cantwell and German Garcia, with covers by Germán Garcia, Jenny Frizen, Yannick Paquette, Mirka Andolfo, Vincenzo Riccardi, and Zoe Lache That's how you know this is gonna be a really good comic because all of my like top 15, <laughs> a, a big chunk of my top 15 best cover artists are doing covers for it. Solicitation says, what if Sleeping Beauty never got her happily ever after and instead had to save herself? Set in a brutal fantasy world that time forgot, this isn't the fairy tale you know. Eisner Award nominator, writer, producer, and director Christopher Cantwell, Iron Man, United States of Captain America, Halt and Catch Fire, great show, and rising artist Germán García. Yeah, Garcia, who apparently has done Kazar Lord of the Savage Land, reimagined the classic tale as an epic dark fantasy adventure. I love fairy tale retellings. Um... Uh, so much as to say, I kind of I even enjoyed the Snow White and the Huntsman movie. I'm sorry, I did. I, I liked it. <laughs> um, wasn't perfect, but it was enjoyable for sure. <laughs> um, so this is this is all already up my alley. Christopher Cantwell is a proven excellent writer, not only through his Iron Man run, uh, but for his ah uh, his TV writing, he's done a really great job. The first season of Halt and Catch Fire was. Chef's Kiss, just absolutely wonderful show. Um, I need to finish that show. Hmm. But anyway, uh, Briar Number One, Boom Studios, Image Comics. We have a couple of comics here. Starting off with Flawed Number One. This is by Bitterroot co writer Chuck Brown and superstar superstar artist Prenzi. It says, Jem Ez is a psychiatrist in the Kafkaesque city of Sethim, where corruption and brutality rule the streets. By day, she uses words to solve her patients' problems. By night, she takes a more direct and sometimes deadly approach. But when her practice puts her in the sights of an immortal serial killer, Jem finds herself embroiled in a power struggle that threatens everything she's ever known. And both covers for this one are by Prenzy. Old Dog Number 1 by Declan Shelby and Declan Shelby. This follows Jack Lynch, a once promising CIA operative. On the eve of retirement, looking back at a failed career, he is tasked with one final mission that goes horribly wrong. He wakes years later to a changed world with even deeper changes within him. When a shadowy group offers Lynch a second chance for a life of adventure, he finds himself paired with the last person he could ever imagine. In order to adjust, this old dog will have to learn some new tricks." Covers for this are by Declan Shelby, Marcos Martin, Kevin Nolan, and Chris Samney. I recognize all those names, too, so it's probably a good sign. Onyx is another one from Image by Lock and Key co-creator and artist Gabriel Rodriguez, colorist Jay Fotos, and another writer, Chris Ryle. And it says this is a complete extra-length tale of cyborg warrior Onyx. Onyx arrives in a near-future Nigeria beset by overpopulation and food shortages alongside another alien entity that corrupts all lifeforms in its presence. Is Onyx here to save the planet or, in its final throes, help hasten its destruction? Grim number five, I have been singing the series' praises since really before it came out this is by Stephanie Phillips and Flaviano Armentero on that note is Stephanie Phillips dating Brian Azarillo go check out her instagram and come back to me with what you think cuz i can't find a solid yes or no anywhere in there anyway covers are by Flaviano Armentero Jenny Frison, Justine Franny and Felipe Andrade what did i say about recognizing all the names of the cover of the cover artists usually means the series is going to be free and great Again, I recognize all of these. Uh, This is going to be the last issue of Grimm until it returns in December. 8 Billion Genies number 5 is where we're going to witness the first eight months after G-Day, Genie Day. It's by Charles Soule and Ryan Brown, with covers by Ryan Brown and the illustrious Trad Moore. I always love his art. That wraps up Image, and we move on to Abstract Studio with Parker Girls No. 2 by Terry Moore and Terry Moore. It says, once you're in, there's only one way out of the Parker Girls. So when Tambi calls, Kachu has no choice but to go back to work, using her special talents to help bring down a billionaire's empire one scandal at a time. Fun. Oni Press has Pink Lemonade number one from Nick Cagnetti and himself, with covers by Shaky Kane and Jamie McKelvey. Jamie McKelvey is also fantastic breakout indie comic sensation Nick Cagnetti's sleeper hit comes to Oni Press a new hero on the scene Pink Lemonade dreams of doing big things but ultimately she'll settle for doing good and for helping where she can things don't always work out as planned as Pink Lemonade sees when she accidentally crashes the set of the next Rex Radical blockbuster movie while trying to do her hero thing there's a misunderstanding and some cops and just when you think she's sunk she gets an offer she may not be able to refuse but is it too good to be true? Meet the heroine with a mysterious past Colorful costume, altruistic outlook A zippy motorcycle, and an overactive Imagination. It's all pretty cool I I, I mean, yeah, it sounds Pretty cool to me. Um, I'm into these Funky kinds of things, like Um Flavor Girls? This sounds very much in the lane of Flavor Girls. From Dark Horse Comics, we have The Roadie Number 1 by Tim Seeley and Fran Galen. More than 35 years after his heyday, a former heavy metal roadie must return to the back roads of America to a job he thought he'd retired from. Exorcist. <laughs> Bet you didn't see that one coming. But this time, he is not saving groupies and drunk bassists. He's trying to save his daughter. Okay. And Dynamite Comics, we have Vampirella Year One from Christopher Priest and Ergun Gundes, which I probably say wrong every time I say it, but we've got covers by Colette Turner, Lucio Perillo, who again does a cover for every single thing Dynamite ever puts out, I swear it's in a contract somewhere, Carla Cohen, Guillaume March, Kevin Nolan, Joseph Michael Linzer, Tempano, Gunduz, Gundes, Jay Ferguson, and a cosplay cover. There are three titles from DC Comics, starting with Tim Drake, Robin Number 1 by Megan Fitzmartin and Riley Rosmo. I can already hear people bitching about Riley Rosmo's art, and the issue's not even out yet. Covers for this one are by Ricardo Lopez-Ortiz, Jorge Jimenez, David Baldion, Sweeney Boo, Dan Moore, and Jamal campbell All fantastic artists. It says, Step aside, Damien. The world's favorite Robin has got this. That's right. After years away, Tim Drake is taking center stage in a brand's making a new Robin series of his very own. A mystery over a year in the making takes shape as a new villain who's been hounding Tim from afar decides to take things up close and personal, putting Bernard and everyone else Tim cares about in peril as things go from bad to worse for the world's oldest and canonically tallest Robin. No, I will not be fact checking that. That was in the thing. That wasn't me. That wasn't a thing. All all that and Tim finally carves out a corner of Gotham City just for himself and sets up shop in his very own murder shack boat. And if that wasn't enough, break out your skateboards and motorcycles because we've assembled a murderer's row of artists to draw the 1990s one true Robin, trademarked, in his various look from over the years. Whew. Harley Quinn number 22 is Stephanie Phillips with new Harley Quinn artist Matteo Loli. Covers are by Matteo Loli, Steg and Sejic. You know, let's talk about him earlier there. Sejic. Natalie Sanders, Ryan Sook is doing an homage cover. Uh, also David Baldion and David Nakayama. This says, who killed Harley Quinn chapter one? The Quinn is dead. Long live the Quinn. That's bad timing, DC. <laughs> It's a funny timing. Okay, let's be honest. I get killed in this one for real. Dead, DC's former, late, pushing up daisies. Daisies. Somebody needs to solve my murder. Actually, pushing daisies. Fantastic show. Go look it up. Somebody needs to solve my murder, and since I don't see Sherlock Holmes or Hercule Poirot around, I guess it'll have to be me. Though since I'm dead, there are certain hurdles to overcome. The harliest, wildest arc starts right here. Get ready for murder, multiversal mischief, and more guest appearance. With Stephanie Phillips and new Harley Quinn artist, Matteo Loli continued from the 2022 annual. Finally, The Human Target number seven uh, by Tom King with art by Greg Smallwood, also covers by Greg Smallwood, Art Germ, and Francesco Mattina. This is issue seven out of 12. It says, chapter seven, to shoe a troop of horse with felt. I, I don't know what that means. After discovering clues, the death of a Green Lantern, and a torrid romance with Tora, Olaf's daughter, aka Ice, DC's top bodyguard may meet his match when Beatrice LaCosta, otherwise known as Fire, steps into his life. Only time will tell what secrets this flaming femme fatale might hold, and just how badly the human target might get burned. That leaves us with Marvel, where we have four titles to discuss. The first is Marvel Voices Communidades, number one, where it looks like we have one, two, three, four, possibly five stories. Um, it says, Returning for another rousing celebration of Marvel's Latinx characters and creators is Marvel's Voices Communidades. Legendary creator Fabian Nisizina, who's kind of an asshole IRL, takes to the stars in an action-packed Nova adventure. Superstar Edgar Delgado continues to show off his writing chops with a spine-tingling spider escapade with Miles Morales. And award-winning author Alex Segura blazes a new trail for White Tiger and introduces a brand new character to the Marvel mythos. And that's only scratching the surface, not to mention the amazing lineup of new and established artists lending their voices to this astounding anthology. We have stories by Edgar Delgado, Fabian Nicezina. I don't know how to say his name, Nicieza, <laughs> Alex Segura, Carlos Hernandez, and Zoraida Cordova, with art by Marcelo Costa, Jorge Antonio, Yasmin Flores Montanez, Luis Morotro, and Paco Medina. Covers for this one are by Lucas Warnock, Paco Medina, Phil Jimenez, and Chico Chico. Really? Chico? Okay, Chico Chico. Alright, Judgment Day Avengers number one is a single, it's a a one-shot, and the solicitation says, the first story critical acts one-shot, which leads me to wonder, gee, why is it a one-shot side story if it's story critical? That would be because they're lying. It isn't. They just want you to buy it. Because <laughs> they couldn't have a filler issue in the main series. Uh, so you really don't need to pick this one up. It's Tony Stark-based, so honestly, I might not even read it myself. But it's by Kieran Gillen and Federico Vincentini, with colors by Dean White, and covers by Nick Klein and Salvador La Roca. Thunderbolts number two by Jim Zub and Sean. Izaski has covers by Sean Izaski, Stefano Caselli, Betsy Cola, which is an America Chavez gay pride cover and it is gorgeous and Mateus Manchanini it says who is ergo the unbreakable, how will his strange power help New York's only official superhero team battle their enemies and balance their budget, read on and discover true believers, okay good for us and finally X-Men number 15 I only have on here because I'm waiting for it to get good suddenly and that's really not probably going to happen, but it is by Jerry Duggan and, or possibly Gary Duggan, and Joshua Cassara, with covers by Martin Cocolo, Russell Dodderman, the Dodsons, Mark Brooks, and Miguel Mercado. So getting into the sixth episode of She-Hulk Attorney at Law, this is going to have a little bit of a shift in it from the last discussions of She-Hulk that I've had, because I find myself to be Less excited about it, um, which we'll get plenty into. Um, it's a bit meh. I'm feeling a bit meh about the show today after the past episodes. Um, I'm getting quite frustrated with the lack of what I might call meat in the series and the extensivity of the fluff. Um, I don't know. So let's get into it and see what you guys think or what you guys thought. Let me know. Uh but in the episode Jen was invited to a wedding for a friend from college. She didn't know her super well. Uh she's invited to be there as a bridesmaid even. Um and to be honest, this is where it started going wrong for me because she complained about it way too much. Um isn't it supposed to be seen as like an honor? If you're invited to somebody's wedding, like, especially, I- I'd hate to be that bride who does not have enough female friends to make up my side of the wedding party, and then end up having t- to ask someone who I barely know, because they're all my option I have, and then they sh- they're they just like, oh, I guess, like, oh, I have to go, why did you invite me to your wedding? Like, uh, isn't that an honor? Like, isn't that, who cares if you don't know her very well? She needed another body, and you were chosen. (laughs) I don't, I don't, that really, it really irritated me how she was so against having been invited to the wedding at all. It just seemed very strange. Um, so she ends up going and for whatever reason, she goes as She-Hulk to another woman's wedding and tries even to say that no one will be paying attention to her, which is obviously not true and a really bad call. Like, Super terrible, especially this early on in the She-Hulk like existence, because she's still a phenomenon. Come on, Jen, what are you doing? Uh, like why did you even send your your bridesmaid sizes as She-Hulk sizes, not as Jen sizes? That makes no sense. You think this bride was She-Hulk in her wedding party? No! This is so obviously the wrong move. Like she showed up as a Jen, and I kind of gasped because I was like I'm sorry. What? <laughs> I would have thrown her out on the spot if that was my wedding. Honestly, um, that is—that's like wearing a bride's dress to a, somebody else's wedding. It's insane. Um, although I will grant her that once she's back as Jen, the rest of the bridesmaids do kind of use her. Um, I guess because she's the odd man out, and she was probably brought in as the one they know it was going to be the gopher because she's the odd man out. And that's still, she literally has no room to complain. You're like, you you don't really have room to complain about this, honestly. Um, But then Titania shows up and it kind of gets worse because Jen immediately and loudly tries to convince the bride that uh, this is basically all about her, Jen, which she ends up being right about. But my God, woman, it is so rude to loudly accuse a wedding guest of all of that in front of the bride. Super insensitive, like just zero out of 10 so far for Jen in the entire episode, So she gets super drunk, as one does at weddings. Again, like, why would you complain about being invited to a place? Okay, they did have a cash bar, so that was kind of slimy, but you don't know that going into it. You would assume that they don't, so why would you? Okay, anyway, I digress. Jen gets drunk. Titania makes her move to fight her, um, and so Jen obviously has to end up turning into She-Hulk, who then smashes Titania through the wedding reception um and Titania of course ends up breaking her face all on her own and needs new veneers which i honestly didn't know people still bought into veneers um never met a single person but whatever it mostly ends up okay after that because the bride is already drunk too um so it's so it's so it's all right you know she's not super mad about the fact that she just destroyed the wedding venue almost entirely so aside from Jen's extremely socially inept and honestly totally compassion-free behavior in this episode, I'm getting very annoyed at how substance-free the show has been. I'm not talking about, like, illegal substances. Uh, The meatiest part of the show was the first two or three episodes, with Jen having to prove herself as a Hulk and a lawyer in various granted very minimal risk situations, at least, but now it is just her having fun. And in this episode, being a complete idiot and kind of an ass, to be honest, um, every episode I sit here and I am looking forward and waiting for someone relevant to show up or even just something relevant to the comic plots and stories that are specific to She-Hulk but there really hasn't been anything all of the cameos and easter eggs have been fairly lame since Blonsky and I don't really feel bad saying that supposedly we are getting more Blonsky so at least there's that to look forward to but aside from that like her lawyer co workers, maybe? Like, every character that you'd expect to be relevant from the comics has been an original character. you got Nikki, the date she went on, the wedding guests, the bride and or groom, her parents, her family, her cousin Ched, even the guy she w- hit it off on that date really well with, who I would have bet money at the wedding. I'm talking about the guy at the wedding. Uh, I would have bet money that he was going to be Wyatt Wingfoot. And he ends up being, like, Ben or or James or something. It was not Wyatt, was the point. Like, so many original characters have been added to her story, but none of them add anything to the story, you know? Uh, sure, we've gotten that elf Runa, who was at least an Asgardian, so we can call that a cameo. There was Mr. Immortal, who is really hardly even relevant to her comics, and the sprinkling of those extremely minor, meaningless cameos, there's been nothing. No meat for her pre-established fans or even new fans to really link onto. They went as far as to change her entire family dynamic. Her mother in the comics was murdered, like, ages ago. You know, they they changed the whole dynamic. She did not have a family in the comics, really. But it hasn't done anything for the show or for Jen's story arc. So why bother making all these changes, create all these new characters, if none of them end up meaning anything? And it leaves the show with a ton of room to be critiqued when it lacks substance like that. Especially when Jen herself acts so low key despicably like in this ish- in this issue episode it it really gives the naysayers all the room they need to say that the show doesn't add anything to the MCU because right now it really hasn't not that it necessarily has to but it would be nice to have the show be relevant in some kind of way Now, someone did tell me that they thought it would be cool if the show was just Jen having a great time as She-Hulk and nothing bad ever happens. Honestly, I cannot disagree more. Bad things don't have to happen for the show to be good or interesting. But so to say it's based off of Marvel Comics, to say it's based off Marvel Comics and then flip Like, her entire personality, her entire story, as well as that of everyone in her circle and everyone she encounters, it doesn't make sense. It just makes us feel like a standalone project. They have all of this room to put in characters who mean something to the comic world, you know, some kind of foothold in her story. But they just aren't, and they aren't giving us a reason why either. There's no alternative, it's just just they're just doing fluff. All right, now let's get into something a little bit more positive again, and that is going to be Rings of Power episodes one through five. No, I am not about to sit here and describe everything that happens in the first five episodes. Um, I think I only have one line for episode two written here, so it's going to be kind of a brief, just like general thoughts and things that came to me while I was kind of going over these five episodes in my head, making these notes. So uh, there have been five episodes, Shadow of the Past, Adrift, Adar, The Great Wave, and most recently, Partings. And then we're gonna have se- a season. We're gonna have episode six premiering this Friday on Amazon Prime. Screw you, Jeff Bezos. Um, so let's start what we know about the show. I've already mentioned it, and think, earlier in the podcast. It's gonna be eight episodes in this season, five seasons total. Um, we are focusing a lot on uh, Galadriel and portions of the story that Tolkien never really expanded on. Um, p- people can say, changing it all you want. There's only so much that Tolkien wrote about and a lot of it was not detailed. Regardless, this is 100% Tolkien-based material. So, Shadow of the Past. Um, we get a lot of material just of Galadriel here. Um, she's leading all of these forces. Um, they end up, she thinks that the orcs are going to be coming back. Obviously she's right. Um, they try to send her to, this sounds kind of bad. They try to send her to the undying lands. The undying lands are where Galadriel was born. We saw in the beginning of the episode, there were the, the twin light trees, right? Um, the trees of the Valar, I think is what they were called. And then that was before there was even like a sun, that was the sun. And then, um, the elves left the undying lands, left the West and went to the, uh, went to Middle-earth and then ended up fighting the whole war in Middle-earth. Um, and now when like they come to the end of their, you know, business on Middle-earth, they get sent on a ship back to the undying lands, um, and I, myself, am not 100% certain th- why it became like that, um, why it couldn't just be they like, go back and forth as they will. I'm sure it's a cultural thing that I'm unaware of, but um, that's kind of like their when, when their duties are finished on Middle-earth, they go back to the Undying Lands. And it's a really cool scene um, when they show like how that kind of works, the ship going from Middle-earth to crossing over to the Undying Lands and you hear this angelic singing and they're all clearly very caught up in it and they feel the pull of the of their homeland. Really cool sequence. Um, and that was where Galadriel grew up. She, says, she even says at one point that the feeling when they cross over, she says, when I was a child, that was the only feeling that I knew. Um, and so that kind of, I think, gives a little bit of an explanation as to why she is so convinced that there is still a war that needs to be fought here is because she's been there since the beginning um she was able to see the world when it was just pure and good and what it has come from since then so obviously i don't think anybody like i don't think somebody like that is just gonna um see the war end and just be like okay we're done that's it. Where it's over. I. mean. I think. I think she knows that there's that these kinds of situations are a lot more complicated than a single battle or war can kind of destroy. Random things about the episode. Obviously, the Harfoots are the interest are the ancestors of the hobbits. Um, the elves are extremely lightweight, and so um, it's it's. I just think it was a fun thing to kind of be able to notice as the way they move and whatnot, um, and. Without a doubt, whoever is the costume designer uh, for this show is probably the most thrilled costume designer in all of costume designing because they, it really seems like they are putting so much detail in this and they have probably all the resources that they could possibly want. Um, And the costumes look phenomenal. One tiny little detail that I noticed, um, the brooches, the little clasps that hold their cloaks over them, are actually designed after real-world medieval brooches. Um, It's kind of like a horseshoe shape with a bar that goes across it. It's a very sharp needle. You stab the needle in the cloak, and then, um, you you know, you kind of use the needle to stab it to itself, and then turn the horseshoe shape so it holds the, the needle through the cloak and it becomes a clasp it's a whole thing it's it's, it's old technology basically uh um, old engineering and they they have something that they utilize here in this show, and it just made me really satisfied. So episode two was called Adrift. Um, obviously, Galadriel did not go to the Undying Lands, she went off adrift. Uh, she meets um what's his name? Halbrand, and they are picked up and taken to Numenor. So Numenor is actually, I don't think we see Numenor until episode three, but whatever. Numenor is um, you know, whereas the Southlanders during the ancient war with Morgoth. They sided with the evil Morgoth. Uh, That's what the Southlanders did. The people whose ancestors now make up the nation of Numenor sided with the elves and the light, thereby earning themselves this westerly island paradise. Uh, for themselves and their people. However, um, fear mongering has led them to eventually cut off all contact with the elves, as well as with the rest of Middle-earth. Um, In short, they become isolationists. Episode three is titled Adar. Obviously, we want to address who is Adar. Well, at this point in the show, with everything that we know to through episode five. Um, I think that he is some kind of first generation orc created by Morgoth or Sauron or whoever long ago. Now the orcs are twisted elves, right? So that's why he would look mostly like a normal elf, because he was an early experiment of this process. And now that Sauron is gone or seemingly gone, I think he's either looking to take his place or return and take power for Uh, Before Sauron can. Uh, But I I really don't think he actually is Sauron. And now about the stranger, obviously the best bets are either Gandalf or Sauron, uh, with both theory presenting their own issues. For Gandalf, the canonical timeline is apparently way too early for his arrival but I don't think that's something enough to stop him from being actually added to the show. The issue there, of course, would be that him being Gandalf would almost entirely cut off Nori and the Harfoot story, or their side of the story, from the rest of the show, unless later events end up tying that all together, I suppose. Of course, if he is Sauron, the issue would be that, well... All of these heartfoots are probably going to die a uh, terrible, miserable death. So that is not a great option either. Episode four is titled The Great Wave. Uh, Isolador, we got introduced, I think, in episode three possibly four, but he is the guy who we see grown up at the beginning of Fellowship of the Ring, being told by Elrond to cast the Ring of Sauron into the fires of Mordor, but he says no and keeps it leading to the events of the future Tolkien experience. Uh the fate of Numenor is that it is going to be basically drowned in a tsunami. That's the whole prediction that Muriel and all the other rulers basically apparently have had, thanks to the uh the the eye, you know, the the sphere thing. Um they later it's called like the yeah, the eye, I think is what they call it. But anyway. Um So Muriel is planning to send off Galadriel because that's, you know, people don't want an elf around. And then the petals of their white tree begin to fall en masse, which signifies, of course, the tears of the gods at whatever decision she just made. So she decides that she needs to reverse her decision and decides to go with an army of volunteers to the Southlands to defend the men who live there. But By men, I mean like humans. (laughs) Um, Of course, this will also be what saves any citizens of Numenor, because as I understand it, those who will stay shall perish in that wave. Um, And now, as for the orcs, who are out there doing a looky look in the dirty dirt, um, I'm sorry, I don't know why I did that. They are looking for the sword. The sword was Sauron's, if I'm not mistaken. It takes blood from the user to be wielded properly. Not sure why they want it. It must be a key to something or another. And then we have young Elrond, who is sent to make kind with the dwarves, and uh, Prince Durin, actually, as he is at this point, where he discovers that they have made a new discovery themselves. Mithril which we see, of course, in The Fellowship as the uh, mail, chainmail kind of top that Bilbo gifts to Frodo, which later saves his life a couple of times, actually. It says, Light as a feather, harder than dragon scales, is how it's described by uh, Bilbo at that moment. Um, and it is a pretty cool connection to make to the original trilogy. I thought that was really fun. Elrond is made to swear in a secrecy, and then he basically just goes home. Now, the latest episode was called Partings. Now, many citizens of the island nation of Numenor They do not like the Queen, Queen Muriel's decision to go and defend the Southlands with their own armies, as seen most prominently with the Chancellor's son, who actually blows up at least one of their ships before departure. He is saved by the now disgraced, or was disgraced, Isilador, who covers for him, and by doing so earns himself a spot on the voyage to Middle-earth. Obviously, we knew this was coming, that he would be on those ships one way or another because he has a great and terrible fate awaiting him down the line, truly. The chancellor also expertly addresses the concerns of his son, who still goes elf and makes a big boom, but oh well. Uh, He addresses that by saying that he would not deny Numenor the trade and growth of allying with the Southlands that could bring them, um, just because an elf is involved basically is the only critique he'll have. Now Halbrand, who I'm still fairly certain is the future king of what will eventually be Rohan, He um, basically has to fight through his own knowledge of his dark path to feel worthy enough to go on the mission with them, but he makes it there in the end. We also see the Eminem looking character, who everyone kind of assumed was Sauron. Uh, they are actually female, I believe, um, and in search of the stranger. Their garb is very cool like, which makes me think that they are already kind of here and waiting for Sauron's return, I guess is my best guess, bringing us back to the question of the stranger's identity. With his use of magic in this episode, how good of a being he is, is definitely getting more and more into question. The Southlanders, a couple of them chose to side with Adar in an attempt to save themselves, uh, him and his orcs. That will certainly not go very well for them, um, as I'm pretty sure they immediately recognized when Adar asked one of them to kill a child to prove their loyalty. So, don't think that'll go very well for anybody. Uh, Prince Durin, on his side of things, is going to the elf capital to see if they're trying to steal his ore or whatever it is that the king is really suspicious of the elves are doing. Uh, he is told a story of where the Mithril must come from. It is an ancient. It was from an ancient tree that contained the lost Cimmerils, the gemstones. And the elf who fought to save it, he filled it with his own light, while on the other side, a Balrog of Morgoth tried to destroy it. Um, in the ensuing power struggle uh, lightning and the energy from the lightning went deep within the ground creating mithril in combination with the um, elven trees being infected and dying uh, that leaves that leaves us to think that the or the elves to think I guess that the mithril could be the answer to saving their species because if the trees if the elven trees are dying it's not a good sign. As for the tower that's being built, Celebrimbor is an obviously sketchy character for an elf, um, and he happens to be the elf that Sauron himself will end up tricking into making his rings of power. So he's already infected himself, so you could say, uh, because that tower is going to contain the forge for him to make those rings good job, idiot, because you're probably already under the influence of Sauron in some way. Um, and in case you forget what the rings are, he, the saying from the uh, the poem, I guess, is three rings for the elven kings under the sky, seven for the dwarf lords in their halls of stone, nine for mortal men doomed to die, one for the dark lord on his dark throne. Um, this was referencing during the creation of the rings, um, Sauron disguises himself as a character apparently called Anatar, and he convinces the elven blacksmith uh, that we met here, Celebrimbor, to make uh, the one ring, which will allow him to control all of the other rings. As revealed in the Silmarillion, Celebrimbor is the one who discovers this plan um, and tries to trick Sauron by forging three more rings in secret. Those are Narya, Nenya, and Vilya, which are the Rings of Fire water, and air respectively. I believe those are the elfin rings. Um, however, that does not go very well as Sauron captures him and tortures him to death, pretty much. It's kind of like we saw with um, um, um. oh my god, um, the orcs torturing Gollum, I guess is what I was trying to think of there. It's kind of like that really brief scene. That's how, that's going to be Celebrimbor's fate too. Sorry. And we're going to wrap up this week's episode with a brief uh, discussion of the end of Harley Quinn Season 3 on HBO Max. The last three episodes, 8, 9, and 10, um, were Batman Begins Forever, Climax at Jazza Pagiza, and the finale I actually didn't write down. But it was the finale. Um, Batman Begins Forever just very quickly. we They realize that Bruce Wayne is Batman. We get his whole crazy, you know, Batman backstory. Uh, and then plant zombies happen, thanks to Ivy. And plant zombie Wayne parents happen, thanks to Bruce's madness. In climax at Jazza Pagizza, uh, Ivy has pretty much gone full Queen Ivy and will use this local jazz festival to spread her plant zombie disease, infecting everyone and then spreading her murderless plant disease across Gotham, terraforming it in the process. But it does kill everybody that it leaves behind. (laughs) Harley figures out that that's her new plan, does not like it for obvious reasons, tries to stop it, but she gets infected and Ivy has to wipe out all of that work just to save Harley. So in the finale, Ivy has to take some time after literally destroying her entire villainous but green plan to save Harley. Uh, Bruce Wayne ends up going to prison for tax evasion, of all things. Uh, Poison Ivy gets set up to be the new head of the Lex Luthor Legion of Doom. And finally, Harley Quinn is going to be teaming up with the Bat family. Um, so we are getting season four of the Harley Quinn show um it'll be fun <laughs> I I really really enjoy it I have no doubt that season four is going to be their last season this the way that they seem to be doing things um I think that they did not cancel these this handful of shows that are, are kind of coming out and being announced for DC because they knew that it would be a very bad reaction from the fans and they've already done that once this year and they can't really afford to do it again um so we're getting Harlequin season four um it's hopefully going to end with them being being Har- them being Harley and Ivy, back on the same page and coupley again, I would very much like that. But we will have to wait and see. Thank you <clears throat> thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Sensational She Geek Live from Yancey Street. Be sure to check out the link to the Yancey Street Discord um, as well as the YouTube page where I have uh, the action figure review videos and there's some new ones up there as well. We will be back next week, the week of the 3rd and 4th of October, if you can believe that already, Um, and we will be discussing episode 6, episode 7 of She-Hulk, I guess is what it is, Uh, episode 6 of Rings of Power. Um, I decided not to go over House the Dragon because I hate every character on that show, and find them to be despicable people. Um, but it's a fun, you know, period drama, so whatever. <laughs> uh, make sure you check out your local comic book shop to see the rest of the comics that have come out recently, because I don't go over every single one of them. That would be crazy. And there is something for everybody out there, because comics are for everyone. Uh, with that note, uh, it is officially fall, so I hope that the weather is treating you a lot better these days. We'll see you next week.